Chapter 5 of Uganda's White Man of Work The Story of Alexander M. McKee This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bethesda Lilly Uganda's White Man of Work A Story of Alexander M. McKee by Sophia Lyon Foz Chapter 5 White Men and Black Men Become Acquainted a mile and a half down the hill from Mutesa's palace was the grass hut where lived the two white men. During the first few weeks after their arrival, they had lived near the royal hill, but because of the jealousy of the chiefs, the king was obliged to have their quarters moved farther away, for according to custom, the greatest chief should live nearest the palace. The Arabs too were jealous, and had told the king that if he allowed the white men to build their own home, it would be a fortress of brick, and they would soon take his kingdom away from him. So the white men's African home was nothing but a rectangular hut with open spaces left in the tiger grass walls for windows. The thatched roof was shaped something like a cocked hat, and in front it extended a few feet beyond the walls, making a sort of veranda. The rooms within, formed by tiger grass partitions, were broken up by numerous poles which served as roof supports and in the dark as obstacles to bump against. Mutesa had given the white men almost two acres of land and it was not long before a number of houses were built upon it. Within four months after Mr. McKee's arrival, five missionary recruits from England reached the capital, making in all a party of seven missionaries. As homes for these, several other huts were built. One man, being a doctor, built a dispensary where he might receive his patients. Mr. McKee put up two workshops where he might have a school of mechanics. A schoolhouse was King Mutesa's gift. An extensive garden was planted with vegetable seeds brought from England. Five hundred banana plants were sent out, and the entire plot of land enclosed by a tall tiger grass fence. Before long, the missionary headquarters began to be very attractive. It is true that in such primitive dwellings, not a few discomforts had to be undergone. Had the missionaries enjoyed anything better than a mud floor or indulged in more than a few pieces of plain furniture, the natives would have become suspicious. Yet the white men were ambitious to show themselves true friends of the black men, and so every day it was their custom to eat some plain native foods. Frequently they would sit down in the home of a friendly native of Uganda to a meal of meat and bananas but try as hard as they might to live plainly among the natives. There were many things about them and their actions which seemed strange to the black men. The large oval table was a most wonderful piece of furniture to the Waganda. To us it would have seemed a very crude affair, for Mr. McKee had made it by screwing together two big half-oval parts of the steam launch and mounting them on six poles which were stuck in the mud floor. Then, too, the black men were bewildered by the strange fire, the lamp, which the white men kept burning on the table, from which they ate. The knives and forks also perplexed the natives, who were accustomed to use only their fingers for handling food. Perhaps, they thought, these long, stiff things the white men eat with are a part of their hands? They looked with curious eyes on the white men's clothes. Their shoes, especially, were beyond comprehension. Why is it, they asked themselves, that the Englishmen have white faces and hands, and black feet, with toes all joined into one? 
All these and other odd customs made the Waganda flock in crowds to stare at the strangers and to watch the things they did. But after a few months had passed, the novelty began to wear off, and the missionaries were no longer feared. The chiefs became their friends, and every day one or more of them called. The white men continued to do many things which seemed most wonderful to the ignorant people of Uganda. From the first, Mr. McKee became a special favorite of the king and chiefs because of the marvelous things he could make. Often Mr. McKee's workshop was filled with chiefs and slaves together who stood and gazed with curiosity as he toiled away with his tools. His blacksmith forge and bellows and his turning lathe were marvels unseen before in Uganda, and as they saw him sharpen a knife on the revolving grindstone, they were greatly puzzled to know what made the wheels go round. In the evenings, Mr. McKee often delighted a company of natives with the marvels of the magic lantern. What mattered it to them that the chimney had been built of two biscuit cans, one placed on top of the other and tacked into a wooden box? Their wonders centered in the pictures. When Mr. McKee's skill became widely known, miscellaneous articles for him to repair were heaped upon the bench in his workshop. Native-made steel hoes and hatchets were given to him to temper. They said it was by means of witchcraft that he was able to put hardness into steel and then take it out again. No kind of wheel had ever before been seen in Uganda, and any sort of rotary motion seemed marvelous to the natives. Even when one day he rolled several logs up a hill, great crowds followed him, crying out, Mahe Lubare, Mahe Lubare Dala, Miki is the great spirit. Miki is truly the great spirit. On one occasion, Mutesa asked to see a steam engine. Mr. McKee tells the story. I went up with one from the steam launch we brought last trip, the first article of the kind ever seen in this part of the world. The king asked many intelligent questions about it. I took a screw key with me to show how the parts can be taken asunder. When the king came out with one of his pretty sayings, he said, White man's wisdom comes from God. They see the human body is all in pieces, joints and limbs, and that is why they make such things in pieces too. After much talk, he asked how white men came to know so much. Did they always know these things? I replied that once Englishmen were savages and knew nothing at all. But from the day we became Christians, our knowledge grew more and more, and every year we were wiser than we were before. I guess God will not prosper any man, the king said, that does not please him. God is kind to all, McKee answered, but especially to these who love and fear him. Eh, eh, yes, yes, answered Mutesa. So, because of his mechanical skill, Mr. McKee had an opportunity to teach Mutesa and his court who the people are who really prosper and become wise. However, it did not satisfy Mr. McKee to have the crowds look up to him as the great man who was able to make anything. His ambition was to gather pupils and to teach them to make useful things for their own people. At first, Mutesa would not allow anything to be taught. Neither did the men and boys wish to learn, for in Uganda it was an honor for a man to be idle. In that tropical climate and rich country, little or no work needed to be done to obtain abundant crops of fruits and vegetables. To support a large family with their simple ways of living meant little labor for the head of the house. What work was to be done 
was given to the slaves and the women. A gentleman in Uganda, therefore, had little to do but to order his slaves and wives about and to attend the daily baraza of the king. That Mr. McKee was willing to work with his hands was not the least wonderful thing about him. It required a long time for him to teach them that a Christian ought not to be an idle man. It was not so difficult a task to persuade the natives to come to the missionary's house to learn to read. At first the king forbade any going to the white men, even for this purpose, probably because he was afraid they would soon be able to outstrip him in their ability to read. It was little more than a month, however, after McKee's arrival, when the edict was withdrawn, and Mr. McKee wrote, I have a whole lot of pupils, old and young. Some have made wonderful progress already, for Waganda are most apt as a rule. I find the slaves, however, usually twice as quick as their masters. Continuing, it was the English alphabet which he taught them, but Waganda words which they learned to spell. On large sheets of paper, the missionaries copied big, clear letters, making easy syllables or words and sentences. The number of pupils steadily increased, so that it was difficult for the missionaries to make reading sheets fast enough. The coming of these pupils, eager to learn to read, was most encouraging. Yet the missionaries' opportunities for being helpful to the Waganda were not confined to their homes and the schoolhouse. King Mutesa was urgent in his frequent invitations to them to attend the morning baraza at the palace and to tell him and his chiefs of the ways of white men and their religion. Every Sabbath morning it was his custom to hold a religious service in the palace. At these times, weekdays and Sundays, the missionaries talked on many subjects to the king and his chiefs. Sometimes it was about the two countries, England and Uganda. You would sometimes be amused to hear the high idea entertained by the king and people about their own country, Mr. McKee wrote. It is only natural, however. Not long ago, Mutesa said to me, McKee, God in heaven will be witness that England will not come to make war on Uganda, nor Uganda go to make war on England. And when I go to England, he continued, I shall take greatness and glory with me, and shall bring greatness and glory back again. Everyone will say, Oh, Mutesa is coming when I reach England, and when I return, oh, Mutesa is coming back again. Of course, at such statements, I only look very grave and say, just so, exactly. At present, do not laugh, Mutesa really believes that Uganda is the most powerful country in the world. Though he fears Egypt, he has often spoken of going to fight against Colonel Gordon. I have had some stiff arguments with him on this point. You will understand that in such matters I must be very careful. A king that is used to nothing but flattery from his courtiers, whose lives he can take at any moment if they do anything other than flatter him, is no ordinary individual to speak plainly to. One needs a smooth tongue when speaking to him. I do not mean to say that I am afraid of him, but there is no use giving offense. And yet the truth can be told, although not in just so many words. In sacred matters, however, I do very differently. In teaching the relations between man and God, I make no mincing of matters. When I have to say what goes hard against heathen custom and pride and love of self, I give my message, saying it is not mine, but God's command. King Mutesa was quick to understand what was explained to him. 
yet things which are very commonplace to civilized men he had never heard of before. When Mr. McKee told him in a simple way about the railroads and steamships and explained what the telephone and telegraph could do, the king was greatly delighted. This is the way McKee summed it up, and Mutesa was deeply impressed. My forefathers made the winds their slave. Then they enchained water. Next they enslaved steam. But now the terrible lightning is the white man's slave, and a capital one it is, too. Their first Christmas in Uganda was duly celebrated at court. Mr. McKee, having explained the meaning of the day, a great flag was hoisted above the palace, as was usual on Sundays, and all the chiefs appeared in extraordinary dress. Mr. McKee read the story of the birth of Jesus, as told in St. Luke's Gospel, and explained the meaning of the Song of the Angels. Being asked to tell more, he related the story of Jesus' boyhood and young manhood at Nazareth, and tried to show by Jesus' example that it was an honor to work with one's hands. Some days later, an Arab trader presented himself at court with guns and cloth which he wanted to sell for slaves. He offered one red cloth for one slave, one musket for two slaves, and one hundred percussion caps for one female slave. Since McKee was present that morning, he was given an opportunity to speak. In the presence of all the chiefs and courtiers, he told the king how cruelly the poor slaves were treated during their journeys to the coast. Mutesa was so much moved that he declared he would sell no more slaves to the Arabs, and the traders were obliged to sell their guns and cloth for ivory only. Some days later, Mr. McKee took a book on physiology to the palace. By means of pictures, he showed the king the different parts of the body and how the blood circulates through them all. He explained many things so that Mutesa might see how wonderfully perfect the human body is, and that no man or group of men in all the world could ever make one. Yet, he said, the Arabs wished to buy these perfect bodies with immortal souls within them, each for a rag of cloth which one man can make in a day. Mutesa was convinced of the wrong, and decreed that from that time no one in his kingdom should sell a slave on pain of death. The best decree you have ever made, King Mutesa, said Mr. McKee. But, alas, it was one thing for Mutesa to make a decree, and another to see that his words were faithfully carried out. Often on Sabbaths, Mr. McKee read to the king some of the parables Jesus told. One day, he read the story of the old garment and the new cloth, Luke 5.36. How it was not wise to tear a piece off a new garment and match an old garment with it, for the new garment would be spoiled, and the patch would not look well on the old gown. So, he told the king, it was just as foolish for him to patch up his old heathen life by doing a few Christian things. It was no use for him to try to be a heathen and a Christian at the same time, to keep on living with his three hundred wives, and to pretend to be a Christian, to buy and sell God's children as slaves, and to claim to follow Jesus, to treat his subjects cruelly, and to order them killed for every little offense, and still pray at Christian service on Sunday. Another morning at court, Mr. McKee read the parable of the sower and the seed, and invited the king and chiefs to talk freely together about it. 
Mutesa was so deeply impressed by the explanation of the parable that he said to his chiefs, Isa, Jesus, was there ever anyone like him? So at the beginning of their life in Uganda, there was much to encourage the missionaries. But King Mutesa was not always the earnest, interested learner he seemed at first to be. He was a king with two very different faces, and he showed whichever he chose when the white men were present. Shortly after Mr. McKee arrived in Uganda, the missionaries were surprised to... Continuing. Shortly after Mr. McKee arrived in Uganda... Continuing. Shortly after Mr. McKee arrived in Uganda, the missionaries were surprised to learn that a group of French Catholic priests were on their way to Mutesa's land. On their arrival, the king received them with his accustomed cordiality and pomp. But from that time, trouble began. Protestants and Catholics both believe themselves to be Christians, yet their beliefs about Christ and the Bible are not alike. King Mutesa seemed bewildered. Every white man has a different religion, he said. What am I to believe? Who is right? First I was a heathen, then a Mohammedan, then a Christian. Now other white men come and tell me these English are wrong. Perhaps if I follow these new men, then other white men will come and tell me these also are wrong. Sometimes King Mutesa was kind to the French missionaries. Sometimes he seemed to favor the English more. Sometimes he was disagreeable to both. Since the white men in the country were regarded as the personal guests of the king, Mutesa was expected to give them homes to live in and, from his royal bounty, to provide their daily food. This he did most generously until after the French Catholics came. Then many a day, both English and French alike, suffered from hunger because Mutesa neglected to send them bananas and cowrie shells, which were Uganda money. The urgent suggestion even reached the Englishmen that they should clear out as quickly as possible, as the king's soldiers were only waiting to kill them all. Later by several weeks, they heard that Mutesa was very ill and did not expect to recover, that a meeting of chiefs and Arabs had been held, at which it was decided to murder all the Englishmen should Mutesa die. Requests from the missionaries for permission to leave the country were persistently refused by the king. Finally, however, he decided to send three of his subjects to visit the great Queen Victoria, and two missionaries were allowed to go as an escort. Two others of the party left Uganda to start missionary work in a city several hundred miles south of the end of the lake, and Mr. Pearson accompanied them for a short distance to get supplies. For some months, Mr. McKee and Mr. Litchfield were left alone in Uganda. Strange to say, during these months, King Mutesa turned about and showed his better face. In the many discussions at court from week to week, he usually took McKee's part. The Sunday services again were held regularly. Mutesa became enthusiastic over the subject of book knowledge and even commanded all his chiefs, officials, pages, and soldiers to learn to read. No one could quite explain the sudden change which had come over him. The mission house was besieged by eager learners. All day long, McKee and Litchfield were never without pupils about them, some of whom were waiting even at daylight. It was fortunate for them that the small printing press had arrived. Long into the night they worked. 
printing sheets which during the day men and boys were taught to read. All the blank paper they had was used, and much of their personal writing paper, yet the demand could not be satisfied. On his return from the southern end of the lake, Mr. Pearson was greatly surprised at the change in the situation. On several occasions, when going to the palace, he said, I saw small groups sitting under the shade of some high fence, going through their sheets. On the way, I met many carrying their sheets, rolled up nicely, with a covering of bark cloth for the hand. At the court, the chiefs sat waiting for the king to open Baraza, and pass the time with their sheets. I had one thought in my mind. Surely this is the finger of God. King Mutesa would have done for a Chinese puzzle. One Sabbath in court, in the midst of the enthusiasm over reading, he made a sudden request of Mr. McKee. After the scripture lesson was read, he asked abruptly, Can anyone baptize? No, was the answer. Can you? No, but the clergyman is qualified to do so. I wish to be baptized, and my chiefs. Mr. McKee told the king that only those who were true Christians should be baptized. Jesus had said, As one could tell the kind of tree by the fruit it bore, so one could tell a true Christian by the sort of life he lived. Mr. McKee had not seen either him or his chiefs giving up lying, witchcraft, murder, Sabbath-breaking, or any of their evil habits. Then, too, if the king wished to be baptized, he must be willing to live with only one wife. Mutesa acknowledged that the Uganda custom of having a great many wives did much harm. Yet he had once resolved to live two years with no wife at all, he said, but after two months he did as he had always done. Several days later, McKee went to the palace and found the king arguing with the Arabs over the Quran, their sacred book. He again showed interest in the subject of baptism. He said he would put away his wives and follow Christ truly. He wanted one wife only in their place, and preferred that she be a white woman. Since he was a king, he said, his wife should be a king's daughter. He tried to persuade Mr. McKee to write to Queen Victoria for one of her daughters. He would give a thousand elephant tusks for her. Mr. McKee told him that he would probably not be able to get her, for in England no woman ever married unless she wished to do so. At this Mutesa was very much surprised, and without more ado the court was dismissed. Like the tall grass about his own courtyard when shaken by the wind, Mutesa swayed back and forth, uncertain in his attitude towards his visitors. He gloried over having the white men in his capital because of the presents they brought and the things they could do. Now he would favor the French, and again he would favor the English, so that he could keep them both in the country. The missionaries knew not what to expect of him or how much to believe of what he said. Yet there was no insult or privation they were unwilling to endure, if only in the end Mutesa could be brought to be a follower of Christ. End of chapter 5. Recording by Bethesda Lilly.